The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to uh, focus on the study of God's Word, ready to uh, put aside various distractions related to things we may be doing this afternoon or things that have occurred in our lives during the past week so that we can uh, focus clearly and uh, consistently on the Word of God this morning so that we can learn what the Holy Spirit has to teach us. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as always, we come before you this morning thankful that we live in a nation of freedom. Thankful that we live in a nation where there have been those in the past, in past generations who have served in the military, uh, military service, those who have been willing to fight for this country, those who have been willing to give the ultimate sacrifice that the freedoms in this nation might be preserved. This particular time and relationship to Veterans Day, we always remember and honor those who have served in our nation's armed forces. Father, we are reminded that the principle in Scripture is clear that freedom is always gained and preserved through military victory. But ultimately, our freedoms come from you. Our freedoms must be grounded in integrity. Integrity can only come from your word, and integrity can only be grounded in a culture through the influence of believers who are learning and assimilating Bible doctrine into their souls and applying it on a day-to-day basis. Now, Father, we gather together this morning to worship you because we recognize that the teaching of your word, the learning, the study of your word, is the highest form of worship. There is nothing more important in life than to learn how you think and how you would have us to think, that we may learn to think your thoughts after you, that we may be able to look at life, look at the details of our own lives, look at the historical trends of our generation, and to be able to understand them within the framework of divine viewpoint. Now, Father, as we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, 
that we would see how they apply to our own lives and that we would not shrink away from application, that we would not be not lose courage in the face of the challenge of your word, and that we might have the the courage and the spiritual audacity to apply these things consistently in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tomorrow, as many of you know, some of you have the day off, but tomorrow is Veterans Day. So I want to take a minute this morning to have those of you who have served in the armed forces and one capacity or another to stand that we can honor you because of uh, your service to our nation. So if you have served in the armed forces, please stand up. You know, it is a great privilege that we have, those of us who have not served in the military, that you have given us because of your willingness to serve in the nation's armed services and to provide for our the continuation of our freedoms, and we appreciate that. You know, I keep trying to emphasize a little tradition here that those of you who can wear your uniforms on Veterans Day, Memorial Day, and Fourth uh, of July. And so Barry remembered this morning, so we thank Barry for trying to continue this tradition we're trying to start here at Preston City Bible Church. So thank you. You can be seated. This morning we are... Uh, Continuing our study on the institution of marriage, an institution that some might say limits freedom, but it is a divine institution, and it is a divine institution that in its consistent application in any nation preserves freedom and provides for the continuation of that nation that honors that divine institution. There are many ways that a nation can dishonor that institution, and we're seeing some of those on our horizon uh, one that continuously comes up, in, at least in recent years, in, in various political campaigns, and that is this, this marriage tax penalty. And see, what m- many people don't understand is the way the tax codes are written is that if you are two single people and you both work, then your tax exposure on income tax is less than if you are married. So you will pay more taxes if you're married than if you're single, and that is a penalty on marriage, and that is a law that violates, a law that, that at its core is an assault, a very subtle assault, but an assault nevertheless, on the divine institution of marriage. Furthermore, we see pressure from the uh, sodomite community, from those who uh, want to be called homosexuals, but we've studied that, and that's a wrong terminology to use. Biblical terminology is that they are sodomites. And, that, uh, and that's also a legal term, and that they seek to legitimize same-sex unions and same-sex marriages. So any believer, any believer who votes for any political candidate that seeks to validate either one of those two principles is an enemy of freedom in this nation. And many believers don't understand these kinds of subtle points simply because they're never clearly explained from pulpits in this nation And so people get distracted by the clever subtleties of politicians who want to put emphasis on things like prescription drugs, uh, prescription drug programs for the elderly, want to put emphasis on civil rights, even an emphasis on war on Iraq. And these may be important in and of themselves, but at the same time, we are electing politicians who are promoting laws that that, that attack the very core issues 
that relate to the freedom of a culture. And by that I mean issues that relate to and, and topics and that relate to the four or the five divine institutions. Whenever laws are passed that limit human responsibility and accountability for their own decisions, whenever laws are passed that favor the uh, being single rather than being married, whenever laws are passed that put more of a tax burden on families than on those who do not have children, these are subtle attacks on the basic divine institutions that provide stability in a nation. So it is important to take into account those kinds of things when you go to the polls and vote. Now this morning we're going to continue our study in First Corinthians chapter 7 on marriage. And we come to verse 8. In verse 8, Paul is addressing the issue of celibacy. Now, this is a problem that has entered into the Corinthian church that is not so much a problem in our culture, but we have various uh, uh, manifestations of it even today. But it was the idea that came out of Greek culture, came out of Platonism, came out of a view that the body was less significant than the soul, that therefore certain things that, that were done in the body were uh, not conducive to spirituality or were in fact assaults on spirituality. And so they got the idea that somehow sex in and of itself was inherently less spiritual. Sexual intimacy in marriage was less spiritual, so it was better to be celibate. And they applied that in the context of marriage. It is not addressing, I keep having to remind you of this, it is not addressing celibacy prior to marriage. That's a given. There is not supposed to be, there is no authorization in Scripture for premarital sex or sex outside of marriage or sex between same-sex partners. Sex outside of marriage is forbidden and is a sin. The issue here was sex inside of marriage. Now, Paul makes the statement in verse 7, just to pick up the context. He says, but I wish that all men were even as I myself. Now, here Paul is simply expressing his own opinion that it would be better if everyone stayed single as he is. He's not saying that is a command. He is not saying that this is an inherently superior position. He is simply looking at it from a pragmatic position. He's saying if you're single, you have less responsibilities, you have less distractions in your life, and you can therefore spend more time in Christian service. And that is all that he is saying. He is not saying that it has some inherently uh, more spiritual value. So he says in verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I... But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So in the second sentence, he recognizes that there are distinctions. There are those who have the ability to remain celibate, where sexual temptation is not an issue, not a problem. There's no sexual pressure for them, and they, therefore, can remain single and can continue a life of Christian service where they're completely dedicated to the Lord. There's no recognition that this is a superior position. In fact, Peter was married. We know that because Jesus healed his mother-in-law in the Gospels. And to have a mother-in-law, you have to be married. The whole idea of celibacy as it entered into Christianity by the 4th uh, or 5th century came out of the influence of Platonism. Platonism had a, an extremely negative effect on Christian doctrine in the first 1,500 years of Christianity, and it displayed itself in a variety of different ways, one of which was in this idea of celibacy, the idea of celibacy for the priesthood that developed in the Roman Catholic Church 
It also, as, as we will see in our study on marriage and divorce when we get there, it also had an impact on the, the views on marriage and divorce such that the early church uh, had an almost unanimous view against any form of divorce whatsoever, which is still the primary position of the Roman Catholic Church. But that, again, was has a lot of its roots in the fact that their theology was affected and shaped by this human viewpoint, worldly framework that came out of Greek culture and came out of, out of Neoplatonism specifically. So Paul emphasizes the fact that that um, there are differences. Some can and perhaps should remain single so that they can serve the Lord more fully and in a more concentrated manner during their life. But not all can do this, so he will go on to say that, that they should marry in verse 9. But before we get there, we need to look at verse 8. Verse 8, he says, But I say to the unmarried and to widows. Now, to the unmarried, he refers to those who are either divorced or to those who are are not married. This refers to two categories, to those who are single and have never been married or those who are divorced and are currently re-singled, as it were. And then to widows. That is a term that applies would apply to both male and female, those who have lost a spouse due to death. And then he says that it is good for them if they remain even as I. So he is saying it is better to remain single. He is not establishing an absolute here. He's not saying don't get remarried. He is going to clearly authorize remarriage when we get down to verse uh, verses 25 through 28. There he will make it clear that it is not sinful to remarry. He is simply talking about making decisions between that which is better and that which might be best. Notice I said might be best. Not, it's not an absolute. Sometimes some of the decisions we make in life are not between that which is good and that which is bad or that which is right and that which is wrong, but that which is good and that which is better, that which allows us to serve the Lord more fully. Now he recognizes that there are various reasons to stay single, and his main point here is that the only advantage for serving the Lord in single status is a time factor. It is not that it is inherently better, inherently more spiritual, but that it's simply a matter of time management. As I noted the last time, whenever you are married, that is going to be a distraction to some degree. Not that that is wrong, but that it is a reality. But most of the disciples were married. Most believers are expected to be married and to raise a family. In fact, as I noted last time, in Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, children are considered a blessing from the Lord. And in Psalm 127, 5, it states, How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. It is important to have children, to be married to ha- and have children, because it is through your children as you properly train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord that you can influence your culture with the divine viewpoint that you inculcate into your children. But when you are married and when you have a family, it will consume a certain amount of your time. There will be time consumed in making the marriage successful, which is point number one. Point number two, I noted there is time involved in the training of children. Furthermore, point number three, there's time consumed in providing materially for the family. When you have a family, you have to look for employment that will enable you to provide provide for them, and sometimes that involves working more hours. Furthermore, uh, it 
is a, it can be a distraction. With all of those family responsibilities, it limits the amount of time that you can apply for the Lord's service, for prayer, for prayer meeting, for being involved in teaching Sunday school and being involved in various other ministries. Those should not be excuses, though, for not being involved in those responsibilities. It just means you have to do more. We all have various responsibilities in a local church, and being involved in a small local church as we are means that every individual has, uh, a, has to assume a greater amount of responsibility. Then if you're in a church, if we took the 50 or 60 of us here and we dropped us into a church of a 1,000, then we could sit back, we would have the privilege of sitting back and maybe not doing a number of things and saying, well, there's somebody else who will do it, and with, with those numbers, somebody else would. But when you have a small congregation of 50 or 60 adults, then you don't have that luxury to sit back and say, well, somebody else will give, somebody else will teach Sunday school, somebody else will get down there and cut the grass or repair the building or do that. There is a greater responsibility on each individual to the maintenance and ongoing, ongoing responsibilities of a local church. And that sometimes makes it frustrating when you're in certain positions such as uh, prep school director or if you're trying to take care of the, the uh, physical property or if you're trying to take care of the finances, at times it gets uh, you get a little stretched because people don't always step up and assume the responsibilities that are theirs as part of being a believer priest and being a, an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not legalism. Re- obligation and responsibility is not legalism. Legalism is when you come along and say that blessing, somehow you are blessed because you fulfill those responsibilities. I had got in a discussion one time with somebody who thought that uh, and when you use the word obligation, which the Apostle Paul uses numerous times, that that means that some sort of legislation of, of legalism, but that's just a absolutely ignorant notion from somebody who's never given much thought to the Christian life at all. Grace does not mean that you don't have responsibilities. Grace means that God's blessing in your life is not dependent on those responsibilities. But nevertheless, we still have those responsibilities. And so there are many of you who need to be thinking seriously about some of the responsibilities around here that need to be taken care of, especially in prep school. We continuously have needs for prep school teachers. And one thing that should convict some of you adults who've been around here for a long time is that we now have a second, I think it's like second and third, two and three-year-olds are taught by teenagers, and now our first grade class is being taught by teenagers. Now, the, the, the teenagers in the church are stepping up to the plate of responsibility in a way that many adults are not, and some of you ought to be thinking about that in terms of your own responsibility. So there are responsibilities and if we're married, that certainly limits things, and I know that there's a tremendous amount of, of uh, outside pressure for many of you. It seems like the more this, this ministry advances, the more key people get more responsibilities dumped on them in terms of their careers. It's been amazing over the last uh, four and a half years since I've been there to watch the uh, level of work responsibilities heaped on some of the deacons in this church as a result of the advance of this ministry because it prevents them from getting more involved or fulfilling some of their responsibilities. And I think some of them are ready for me to go just so they can maybe get out of the angelic conflict 
you know, see their workloads go from 70 hours a week down to maybe 50 hours a week, and they can, they can relax a little bit. Well, Paul clearly recognizes that there are uh, times to stay single as well as times to be married. And I want to cover a few other reasons why you should not get married. This is something that's very important, something parents should drill into their children. First of all, you never get married because of social pressure. You never get married because of social pressure. And depending on where you are in life, there are different groups, different cultures, different subcultures that apply different levels of social pressure. There are some areas, some regions of this country where if you are a young lady and you're 20 years old and not married, you're still thought of as an old maid, and there's tremendous pressure. Why haven't you gotten married yet? You're 20 years old, and you should be married and start having children. Never get married because there is some sort of cultural pressure to do so. You get into some seminaries, Bible colleges, Christian schools. There's, this, there's a subtle pressure there, especially among pastors, because there are many churches that, for one reason or another, will not look at a man or to be a pastor if he is single. And that is just an absurd notion. That means they wouldn't even consider the Apostle Paul. And they never think about things like that. It's amazing how shallow a lot of Christians are. But the Scriptures make it clear that it, your, your marital status is not a requirement or is not a, something that is a primary factor in being a pastor. So because there are churches that... Uh, will not hire. Most churches seem to have some sort of reticence about even looking at a single man. There is this subtle pressure in Bible colleges and seminaries to get married, and I saw a number of men succumb to that pressure during the time that they were in seminary, and by the time they would have gotten out of seminary, they were divorced simply because they succumbed to that social pressure. So don't succumb to social pressure. Never get married because you think, well, I'll never get another chance. There's just limited options out there. That can happen, especially in a small, uh, small town. I'll never get a chance, another chance to get married. This is the best option around, so I better grab it while I have the opportunity. Never get married to solve problems. That's another. These are all categories of social pressure. Don't get married to solve problems in your life. Don't get married to deal with loneliness. If you are lonely, this is this applies tenfold to those who have gone through a divorce or those who have gone through the loss of a spouse. If you have been married and you are re-single, there is a sense that you appreciate the, the, uh, the companionship of a spouse in a much greater way than a person who has never been married. And those who have been married at one time and then they find themselves single again often go right out and get married in a, in a rapid fashion simply because they are lonely. They don't have someone to share their life with, and eventually they wake up, or too frequently they wake up and realize what a mistake they have made. You can be extremely lonely in a marriage, as in fact more lonely in a bad marriage than you will if you are living alone. So don't get married to deal with loneliness. Don't get married because the other person seems to love you. You go out with somebody, you meet somebody, they fall in love with you, and you think this must be it because they love me so much and they're so attracted to me. Uh, don't get married to. Don't get married if you got pregnant. That's another mistake that is often made. Is sometimes there are young people who make a mistake and they get involved in premarital sex, and the girl ends up pregnant, and they think that they have to do the honorable thing and get married. So that what they're going to do is create another problem on top of a problem. 
and they don't really love each other. They don't have the maturity. They don't have the capacity to uh, to carry on a marriage and the responsibilities and the financial obligations, and they just create an even worse situation by getting married because one because the girl ended up pregnant. Don't marry to acquire social status or to improve your the economic or your economic situation in life. Sometimes. Uh, this happens more, I think, with, with women than it does with men, but it happens both ways where you see someone who is more affluent, they're, they're in a career that is going to take them somewhere uh, into a position of more power, more prestige, more money, and so you marry them because it will take you out of the social strata you were born in and, and you will use that to climb the social ladder or to have a better economic situation. Don't marry for money. Don't marry someone simply because they are kind to you or because you are grateful to them because of something they've done for you. Don't marry somebody because they are sympathetic to you. All of those relate to social pressure, different kinds of social pressures that are brought to bear on people. And it's amazing how subtle these pressures can be. And if you're not old enough to really know yourself, you can easily succumb to these pressures without being fully aware of it. That's one reason I say again and again, that you really shouldn't even think about getting married until you're at least 25. I used to say 21. That was years ago. But back in the 80s, I read a, read a study that indicated that the emotional maturity of a 21-year-old in the late 80s was equivalent to the emotional maturity of a 17-year-old of a 100 years earlier. And that continues to change so that the emotional maturity of a 25-year-old today is about equivalent to the emotional maturity of a 20-year-old. Now, that's a general statement. That doesn't apply to every single individual. There are certainly some adolescents that show and demonstrate more maturity than others, but you don't want to get married until you are mature enough to handle the responsibilities and to be able to provide for a family and to provide for children. Part of what needs to happen before you get married is before you get married, you need to know yourself fairly well, and that only comes with time and maturity. So I encourage people to put it off until after they're 25, not that that's a magic number, but that they need to get past college, they need to, uh, most people change tremendously between the ages of 17 and 30, and the closer you get to 30 before you get married, uh, statistics indicate that the more permanent your marriage is probably going to be. Second reason not to get married is financial pressure. Don't marry someone to solve your debt problem. Don't marry somebody because they're going to be a meal ticket. Don't marry somebody to get you into a bigger house or buy you nice cars. Don't marry somebody simply because when you are dating them, uh, this applies a lot to women, but it can go both ways now, just because they, have, they make a lot of money and you're able to do a lot of things that you were not able to do before, Sometimes that creates blinders for people in a, in a dating situation. So don't let economics influence your, your decision to get married. That is in a positive way. Sometimes you need to let economics influence it in a negative way. You can't afford it, so don't do it. Third, don't marry for immigration pressure. I think that just about is self-explanatory. Don't, uh, those who have come into this country uh, and want to have permanent status should not get married in order to secure that. Fourth, don't get married simply because of sexual pressure. Now, this is not a con I'm not contradicting what Paul says in verse 9, where he states, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. There he is establishing the principle that if, in life, 
you can't live a celibate life without succumbing to the pressure of sexual temptation, then you should get married. Paul is not saying get, just go out and find somebody to marry uh, so you don't have to uh, have problems with sexual pressure. You should not marry on a wave of libido. Remember, sex isn't love. It's only one of the many manifestations of love, and as you get older, that sex drive will diminish. Fifth, don't get married because of age pressure. Don't get married because of age pressure. I'm getting too old. You know, there was a study that came out a few years ago that scared a lot of women that a woman who was single by the age of 40 uh, had a greater chance of winning the lottery than getting married or, or something like that. And so uh, when, sometimes people think that when they hit 30 or 35 that they need to get married. Uh, don't get married because of age pressure. Six, don't marry an unbeliever or someone that isn't really interested in doctrine. I don't care how much, how wonderful they are. I don't care how, how much you get along. I don't care how compatible you are. If you marry an unbeliever or a believer who is not really positive to doctrine, then you're opening the door to some tremendous problems down the road. Seventh, don't marry with an attitude that you can get out of it if things don't work out. Too many people have that attitude. It's inbred in our culture now. Well, if, I don't, uh, if it doesn't work out, well, we can just get a divorce. Don't marry with that a- attitude at all. Uh, those are just seven reasons not to get married. And that brings us to the next topic, which is some principles in, for getting married. Some general principles that you should follow if you are in looking for a lifetime partner. If you are looking to get married, then you should uh, consider these criteria. First of all, remember, this is a warning, remember that falling in love is not always neat and logical. You can't pick the time. Some people will sit down, they'll say, well, I'll go to college for four years, and I'll go to graduate school for a couple of years, and then I'll... I'll work for a couple of years, and then I'll fall in love and get married. You can't plan it that way. Sometimes it sneaks up on you, and that's part of why there's a warning here. Uh, people often get married when their critical judgment is nullified by their emotions. This is why it is crucial to always begin a dating relationship by discussing critical issues in life, beginning with your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and Bible doctrine. Remember the purpose of dating. Now, when you're 16 or 15 years of age, marriage is the last thing in your mind. But whether you realize it or not, the purpose of dating is courtship. And the purpose of dating is to get experience spending time with other members of the, with members of the opposite sex so you can develop some ideas about the kind of person you like, the kind of person you don't like, the kind of person you're compatible with, the kind of person you're not compatible with. No matter how distant marriage may be, the ultimate purpose of courtship and dating is to find a spouse. And if you don't realize that, and you think, well, dating is just in and of itself a fun thing to do, then what's going to happen is you're going to walk around one corner and meet some guy or meet some girl, and all of a sudden you're going to fall in love, and this person's not going to be a believer, not going to be positive to doctrine, and you've never discussed the really crucial or important things in life, and now you've got a major problem. And if you don't think that's true, then you haven't lived very much, or you're, you have your head buried in the sand. But I have seen that happen time and time and time again, and I was absolutely amazed in my first church 
with the vast numbers of people in that church whose children had grown up in that church and either married an unbeliever or married somebody from some different denomination or married somebody who was negative to doctrine and their lives were absolutely miserable because the pastor never took the time to drill it into the parents that you need to teach your children some discernment and who they, who they have some sort of dating relationship with. You can never assume that if you're going to go out on a date with, one, with a person, that it's just going to be, oh, well, I'll just go out this one time with them. You do not know what will happen. Falling in love, remember, is not always neat and logical. It doesn't fit a plan, and you may be blindsided. Um, it, it's, there are all kinds of stories about people who go out on a date. Two weeks later, they get married. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But you have to set some standards and operate within those standards. That's why it's crucial to start with a firm commitment to a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and Bible doctrine. Before anything gets very far at all, you need to just clear the boards and make sure that the other person is saved and where they are spiritually. And before things go very far, you need to spend some time talking about that. First of all, it's going to eliminate many people because they are in negative volition. And there are some people who say, well, I may end up just not having a social life because there's nobody out there that's concerned about spiritual things. Well, not having a social life isn't a bad thing. You know, you have to recognize that. Having a social life with people who are unbelievers and with people who are negative is, biblically, a bad thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that bad company corrupts good morals. And so too many people think that having a social life is better than not having a social life, and somehow... I'll go out and I'll spend time with these friends and they won't really influence me. And the next thing they know, they have influenced them and their spiritual life is on the skids. Furthermore, if you start off as a teenager, emphasizing the correct priorities in terms of salvation and the spiritual life, what you will develop is communication skills that are built around the most important issues in life that will need to be there foundationally in a future ministry. So it lays a foundation for future meaningful communication within a marriage related to spiritual priorities. And not just spiritual priorities, but related to the, some of the more important things in life. I'm always amazed at how people can get married who have completely different views about spiritual things or who have completely different, things about, completely different views on political issues. It amazes me sometimes when I meet people and you have one member in the marriage is a conservative Republican and the other one's a liberal Democrat. What do these people talk about without getting into a fight? Do they, do they care? I mean, these are, these are some of the most important issues in life and they affect everything you deal with in life to some degree or another. So how can you have really profound soul compatibility if you can't agree on spiritual things and you can't agree on other fundamental things in life. So in a dating relationship, you need to talk about a lot of things. Talk about each other's backgrounds. Talk about family life. Spend time with each other's families. Learn to observe how other people interact with their parents and interact within their families because it is within their family that they learned, how to in they, they learned and they saw an example of how to interact in intimate relationships and what they saw and witnessed and learned in their family growing up is what they will imitate when they get married. 
And so you need to learn to, to observe how they observe their family dynamics, watch how their father treats their mother, how the mother treats the father, because that, per, that is pretty much how that individual is going to uh, treat their spouse when they grow up. You learn your, many of your ideas about marriage relationships by watching your parents. Now, sometimes what happens if it's a really bad relationship then you see the person overreact and go in the completely opposite direction. In a courtship situation, you need to spend time in a variety of different situations. You need to observe how the other person handles pressure, how they handle adversity, how they handle prosperity. How do they argue? How do they fight? This is one thing I, when I used to do a lot of uh, premarital counseling, I would spend a whole session talking with couples about, well, how do you fight? And you always have this, oh, well... We just love each other and we never fight. Well, you better not get married until you have a good knockdown, drag out disagreement so you know how the other person fights. Because if they fight with an with a iron skillet, then you're in trouble. People, people argue, people fight, people vocalize their, their disagreements in many different ways. And if you're not compatible, and that some people hold things in, some people just spout it and blow and then everything's passed 10 seconds later other people keep it all in they're very quiet and they're very calm they see somebody just just uh, vent their emotions very rapidly and move on they think that's some sort of extreme anger and they don't know how to handle it so you have to observe each other in all manner of different environments and situations and relationships you need to discuss views on child uh, rearing how are you going to rear children? What are your views on discipline in the home? What would deter, de, demand a spanking? What would not demand a spanking? What views do you have on uh, training children, teaching them about uh, about basic things like money and sex? And, and what are your views on homework? And you get down to these basic everyday issues. That's what shows up when you get a couple come in and marital collapse. You know, one spouse has one view on how the kids ought to do their homework and the other one has another view, and they have a different view on, on uh, uh, discipline in the home, and, and all these things conspire together, and now they're, they're, their marriage is fragmented and fractured, and they've got all kinds of problems because they never talked about it before they got married. I'm amazed at how many people never communicate with each other their core values, their core understanding, philosophy of life, and, and family before they get married. And it's come to, I've come to realize that the reason they don't talk about it is because they probably got married before they ever realized they had one. They never thought about it themselves. They're living silly, superficial, immature lives, and somebody comes along and sweeps them off their feet, and they go get married, and they never gave it a second thought because their whole thinking about life was so shallow and so superficial at that stage that they had no idea what they were doing, and they're going to reap the consequences. So part of what goes on in any sort of courtship or dating situation is a tremendous should be a tremendous amount of communication. And I don't mean nonverbal communication in the backseat of a car. I mean verbal communication where you're talking about the core issues in life. You need to talk about your plans for the future. What do each of you see for your future? What do you want to do in your life? What do you want to do with your life? And if you don't know what you want to do with your future, then you shouldn't get married. One of the key principles that comes out of an understanding of Genesis chapter 2 
is that God brings the woman to Adam in order to be his assistant or helpmate. She is there to help him go wherever it is God wants him to go in life. Now, men, if you don't know where God's taking you in life and how you're going to serve the Lord in life, then you are doing a tremendous disservice to a woman to ask her to marry you because her primary responsibility under God is to help you get where you're going. And if you don't know where you're going, how, do you, how can you expect her to be able to help you? And for women, it's the same thing. They get married to some guy, and he doesn't have some general idea. And I, I'm not talking about specifics, but most people have some general idea when they're in their mid-twenties the kind of work they're going to do, the kind of life they're going to lead. Uh, you ladies, if you're going to marry some guy who's going to be, and it works both ways, men too as well. If you're going to marry somebody that's a lawyer or a doctor or in some career capacity that is going to have a, a heavy time commitment, and you're the kind of person that really wants a, a lot of companionship in marriage, you want your spouse to be around a lot, you want to be able to spend a lot of time together doing things, and they're going to be working 80 hours a week. Well, you're going to have some real problems down the road. So you, once again, it goes back to those core principles. You have to know yourself, and you have to know the other person and where they're going. And uh, ladies especially need to have some idea of where the man is going in terms of his concept of serving the Lord and his, his, uh, his ministry in life, which includes his, his uh, vocation. Because if your primary purpose under God is to help him get there, you have to decide whether or not you want to help him get there. So you need to have some idea of where, generally where you are going in life. So you have to discuss the future. You have to discuss money. Money is one of the major causes of problems in marriage. You have to discuss how you think uh, money should be spent, disposable income, not the money that's spent on on uh, necessarily on bills, on the mortgage, on rent, on utility bills, on groceries, but how the disposable money is spent. How much should be put into savings? What is your philosophy of saving? What do you think about the future? How, what's your investment uh, philosophy? You need to talk about ownership of property. You need to talk about uh, saving money for the future. All of this is important. You need to have a budget. One of the things I've often asked young couples to do is to write up independently of one another a budget for the household. Just sit down. You're going to get married. You, the wife's working. The husband's working. They're making a certain amount of money. Say, okay, I want you to independently sit down and write a budget on how you think you're going to spend your money and what the financial priorities are. Oh, is that an interesting discussion? Because what happens 90% 90, 90 of the time, they've never talked about it in courtship, and he's out spending money on on whatever it is his hobbies are, and she's spending the money on shoes or clothes or whatever. And uh, not that any of those things are wrong, but he's got his idea, she has hers, and they're going to get six months into that marriage, and they're going to have credit card debt out the wazoo, and they're not going to be able to uh, start paying these things. It's going to take them ten years to work their way out of it because they never went into it with any kind of planning. For some of you who've been married a while, you might want to sit down and do that even now. You have to discuss all of these things. One of the things that I have a lot of fun with sometimes in, a, in a marriage counseling is to, one week I'll tell the, tell the husband, or I'll tell, tell both the man and the woman, I say, I want you to go home. I don't want you to talk to each other about this assignment at all. I want you to do it completely uh, independent of one another. And I want you to write down, I want the woman to write down what she thinks it means for a wife to be submissive to her husband. 
and I want the man to write down what he thinks it means for a wife to be submissive to the husband. And then we'll come back next week and we'll talk about that. Oh, that's another really interesting discussion. Because usually the woman's view of what submission to the husband means doesn't have anything to do with what he thinks it means. And then, of course, the next week I'll reverse it and I'll say, okay, lady, ladies, or for the woman, I'll say, you go home and you write down at least two pages. I, I, you know, I want you, the first, if you just write a half a page, you haven't yet thought about it yet. I want you to write at least two pages of what you think it means for the husband to love you as Christ loved the church. And then the man, I want you to write down what you think it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And the same is with the other assignment for women being submitted to the men. I want at least two pages because usually the first, you know, if you write a half a page, you haven't, you haven't even begun to scratch the surface and you're not thinking very deeply about life. And you get people writing down their views on those two issues, they're going to come back and you're going to have a lot to talk about for a number of weeks because they will be completely different ideas because women hear what, what most women hear when they hear, hear it taught that wives should be submissive to their husbands and what the men hear are not the same. I, I know that surprises some of you. And the same thing when it comes to husbands loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, some of you have been married for a while. You know, that might be an interesting little exercise for you. But if you things are going okay, maybe you ought to just leave well enough alone. It's important to communicate and talk to one another about all of these crucial issues in life. It's great when you're dating and everything's a rosy glow and, and uh, everything looks great and you're just having a fantastic time together, uh, but life gets pretty messy. What do you do if six months into the marriage or a year into the marriage, some tragic illness befalls the other person in an automobile accident, they're paralyzed from the waist down? What do you do? Remember, the marriage vows are... In, in, in health and sickness and health, in, in prosperity and adversity. You know, sometimes I want to say it like this, you know, in, in sickness and health, in adversity and prosperity. See, most people never hear the negatives. All they ever hear is the positives. And when you're young, you think life's going to work out and be great. But life doesn't always work out that way. What are you going to do if, six, if, if you've got a great six-figure income, and six months after you get married, uh, the husband loses his job, and, and n now he doesn't have any income, and you've created a mountain of debt based on a false assumption that he's going to continue to make that kind of money for the next ten years, and after he loses that $100,000 a year job, all he can land is a job making $30,000 a year, and yet you've created a load of debt based on a false assumption. So you've got to think about those things, and most people, when they're young, don't, don't want to think about those things. All of that has to do with, all of that is under the sub, sub point of, point number one, that falling in love is not always neat and logical. You never know where your emotions are going, going to take you, so from the very beginning, you need to be thinking about the core issues in life and be involved in, in talking about them so that you can let your intellect control things a little more than your emotion. Point number two, important areas of compatibility. These are areas to look for, important areas of compatibility. We live in a culture where the first thing people want to be compatible in is a physical compatibility, but that's the last thing. First of all, there needs to be a spiritual compatibility. 
a spiritual compatibility, both in terms of salvation and the priority of Bible doctrine. Second, there needs to be an economic compatibility, an economic compatibility where you have similar views on how money is handled, how money is spent, how bills are paid. Third, there needs to be some level of recreational compatibility. What do you like to do in your free time? If the husband gets his free time and he wants to spend it all day on the golf course and the wife wants to spend it all day shopping, then when are they ever going to have time together just enjoying one another and having time? Now, they need to work that out. There are some people who uh, are uh, they're, they're very prone to that. They're very comfortable with having a relationship where uh, they don't have a lot of social contact with the other person. Other people want a lot more. It just depends on the individual personality. So you need to have recreational compatibility. If you are a man who enjoys the outdoors, backpacking, hiking, a more rugged environment, and uh, your spouse thinks that, uh, uh, you know, having a uh, single room instead of a suite at the Ritz-Carlton is roughing it, then, then you, need to, um, you need to stop and think about that, that uh, uh, what you're going to do on your vacations. If one of you likes to go skiing all the time and the other person just wants to lie on a beach the whole time, well, you've got to talk about those things. So there needs to be recreational compatibility and there needs to be mental compatibility. You know, after a while, you need to be able to talk to one another and you need to be able to converse about the things that are going on in the world. And so you need to see if there is intellectual compatibility. It's often difficult and, 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 and education, formal education doesn't have anything to do with it. Sometimes it is a barometer, but if you have somebody who, has, who is fairly intelligent and has a, an advanced education and somebody who just has a college or a high school degree, then frequently that indicates that, that one person can talk about a lot of things in a more sophisticated way than the other person, and there will be eventual problems. And then finally, there needs to be a sin-nature compatibility. By this I mean you need to be able to understand the trends in the other person's sin nature and be willing to live with and adapt to those trends when they're in carnality. That doesn't mean you should have the same trends that the other person has. You know, sometimes if the two, two people get together, and this happens in just as friendships within the same sex as well as marriage, if you both have the same trends in your sin nature, then what you do is you egg each other on into carnality. But when you're married, you need to recognize that when your spouse gets out of fellowship, they're going to act a certain way. Can you live with that? What happens if they go into extended carnality for months or years? Can you live with that? Can you adapt to that level of carnality or not? Third point, never marry somebody with some sort of addiction problem or a, or a personality that is prone to addiction, whether it's uh, alcoholic addiction, drug addiction, gambling addiction, or just addiction to entertainment. You know, there's all kinds of ways people can develop bad habits and certain addictions, and it, you need to be able to uh, discern whether they have that kind of a personality and never marry someone, especially if they are prone to alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling, any of those things, you're just asking for trouble down the road. Point number four. And, and remember, all of this is under the category of selecting a lifetime partner. Point number four, men need to be of an age where they are ready to assume a leadership role. Men need to be old enough and mature enough to where they are ready to assume a leadership role and the responsibilities that go with it. They should be financially stable. 
They should be ready to assume the financial responsibilities of providing for a family. Now, we all recognize that there are times when you make adjustments because of graduate school or because of other uh, extenuating circumstances in life, but that's not, those are exceptions, and you never make rules on the basis, uh, or establish principles on the basis of exceptions. You always establish principles on the basis of the universal principle, and then you recognize that now and then there are extenuating circumstances, and those need to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, and the person who's getting married, though, usually doesn't have the objectivity to do that, so you need to have, have someone you can rely on that might give you a little insight. Uh, a man should look for a wife that has the proper mental attitude towards spiritual things and towards application of doctrine, and someone who is ready to assume the biblical responsibilities of a wife, not the cultural responsibilities of a wife. I'm not talking about being barefoot and pregnant, coming home and being able to, to and cooking every meal for you, acting like your mother, because if you marry someone who wants to have a career, you need to evaluate what, what the, those career demands are going to be and how that's going to affect things in the home. Now, I understand that there's some real cultural and generational problems here. I think if you're a baby boomer or older, that means if you're probably about 38 and older, uh, studies seem to, recent studies indicate you probably know something about cooking. If you're under 38, studies indicate you don't know anything better than just a microwave oven and fast food. And that's another issue that comes into marriage. If you grew up in a home where you are, you, you grew up where your parents worked and you grew up in, with all kinds of processed foods and things that were already prepared, you have to realize you spend three or four times the money for something that somebody else has already prepared and cooked than you do for just the raw ingredients where you learn to cook yourself. And uh, I am amazed. I, I, I have seen uh, individuals that when they were single and because of their job, they ate out a lot, they might spend three or four hundred dollars a month eating eating out and they might spend uh, because of the kinds of foods that they eat the prepared foods that they buy at the store they might i mean as a single person they might spend another three hundred three or four hundred dollars in groceries but if you transfer that and you just learn how to cook you can cut that that overall grocery bill down to probably a couple of hundred dollars a month per person or three hundred dollars a month i don't know what it is today and don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. I know when I was in college, I had a roommate. We each dropped 50 bucks into the pot each month and went out and bought groceries, and uh, he couldn't cook. We, vote, we, made, a, we made a decision. His, his, his mother would probably burn jello, and my mother could cook, so I ended up being the cook, and he ended up being the dishwasher. And uh, I went through three different roommates with that arrangement. It ended up being a fairly decent cook, and I enjoy cooking. But not everybody does that. But you have to learn to adapt to different situations. Anyway, you have to have uh, a man needs to look for a woman who understands biblical responsibilities and is ready to assume those biblical responsibilities. And men need also to be at a point of maturity in their own life where they're able to explain and define for themselves what it means to be a leader and an authority in the home, as opposed to being a tyrant and a dictator in the home. They need to have a sound understanding of biblical responsibilities. They also need to know what those terms mean, that is, being a leader and being the authority in the home. They need to know what those terms mean to the woman that is involved. Point number five, this is addressed to the ladies. Women should be ready to adapt themselves to the man and to the Lord's leading in his life. 
The woman needs to be adaptable to the Lord's leading in the man's life. Uh, this is, we live in an age when many women are taught and trained to have a career and to be career oriented, and it is not uh, within outside the bond, boundaries of reason to expect that it will frequently occur that her career goals and his career goals may come in conflict if they are living in one location and she has a great career and he has a great career and suddenly for her career to advance she has to take a job in another part of the country how are you going to handle that whenever you put the woman's career the wife's career ahead of the man's then you're in violation of the plan and will of God remember the wife is designed to assist the man in God's plan for his life not the other way around so when you get into these Mr. Mom scenarios, you know, first of all, they're violating the basic biblical rules for role relationships within the marriage. Women should not marry until they meet someone to whom they are willing to surrender their freedom. Ladies, when you get married, you're surrendering some of your freedom because now you are to adapt yourself and submit yourself to the leadership and authority of your husband. So you need to look at that. If you're single, you need to look at that guy and say, well, is this guy exhibiting the kind of character and leadership and responsibility traits that I'm willing to give uh, my freedom up for? You need to make sure that that man is not someone who will abuse his leadership role uh, not some, and to make sure that he is someone who has a basic understanding of the biblical responsibilities of a husband. It needs to be someone you can respect and whose leadership you can follow. Uh, women need to be able to define what it means to be a submissive wife and to follow the leadership of the husband and what it means to adapt yourself to your husband. Remember, the husband is not to adapt himself to the wife. The wife is to adapt herself to the husband. Sixth point, always remember it's better to be single than to be married to the wrong person. It's better to be single than stupid. There's nothing more miserable than being married to the, to the wrong person. Those are six points on general guidelines in selecting a lifetime uh, partner. Lifetime partner. Now, verse 8, Paul said, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. So it's good to remain single, but remember he's got a pragmatic reason, and that is uh, for the benefit of serving the Lord and putting that priority first. Not a selfish reason. So you'll have some people say, well, I'm just not going to get married because if I get married, then I'm going to have to do this or I'm going to have to be more loving or I'm going to give up some of the things I want and they basically stay single because they're arrogant. It's probably good they stay single because they're arrogant and self-absorbed, but they need to get rid of the arrogance and the self-absorption. Same thing with some, some parents I, I, I've known known couples who said, well, I'm just too selfish to have children. If I, have, if I were to have children, I would have to give up some of my freedom. Well, it's probably good that they didn't have children. But it would be better if they gave up their arrogance and self-absorption. That brings us to verse 9, where Paul says, if they do not have self-control, he says, let them marry, for it is better to marry uh, than to burn. And there he recognizes that, that mo for most people, for most believers, they do not have the ability to maintain a celibate lifestyle and to serve the Lord. And, of course, marriage is a divine institution. So it is better to marry than to be consumed 
with sexual lust. Now, the word there for self-control is the, the aorist middle indicative of incretuo, which means to have self-mastery or self-control. The present, uh, in, uh, excuse me, the aorist uh, indicative here indicates a, a, a customary thing, or that this is to be, excuse me, this is a, uh, a present middle indicative, and the present tense is customary. That means they should have be customarily self-controlled. This doesn't mean that the celibate never has any thoughts of sexual temptation. But that generally speaking, this isn't a major problem in their life. They might have had an occasional lapse. They doesn't mean that they're totally uh, uh, without any sort of sexual inclination, but that for them it's not a major problem and they habitually have uh, control in this particular area and it is and sexual temptation is not a distraction for them. Remember, generally speaking, in terms of marriage, you must have doctrine, you must have some level of, of maturity when you get married, and too often one of the reasons that marriages fail and fail as early as they do is when the people got married, they were immature. Now, that doesn't mean for anyone here to get the idea, oops, I got married too soon, I screwed up, I made a mistake, well, let's dump the marriage and figure it out. No, you have to start where you are. God's grace is sufficient for everything, and it's time to grow up and for both people to get married. Remember, in the Old Testament, those people didn't know each other at all. They learned to adapt and to fall in love each other without ever having gone through any sort of premarital courtship or dating process. So the fact that you married somebody, you might uh, have married too quickly, you might have been immature, is no excuse for not being able to work through the problems. Under the plan of God and with the application of doctrine, any problem, any failure can be overcome. And that is what we have to deal with in the next section, starting in verse 10. Uh, Paul is going to deal with the maintenance of marriage and some situations that relate to the breakdown of marriage. And we will look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word this morning and to understand these basic principles related to marriage. Father, we thank you for the fantastic illustration we have of the kind of love that should characterize marriage through our Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. We're reminded that in marriage it is the kind of love you demonstrated to us in our salvation that is to characterize that marriage union, and that can only come as a result of salvation and a result of spiritual growth. Father, we pray right now that if there's anyone here this morning that perhaps has never uh, put their faith alone in Christ alone, that at this time they will they have that opportunity. Perhaps you're not sure about your eternal destiny or certain of your eternal des- destiny, and right now you have the opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and you will have eternal life. This is a new life that can never be taken from you, a new life that you can never lose, a new life that is a free gift and one that is not conditioned on any behavior on your part. It's not based on your good deeds. It's not based on church attendance, church involvement, uh, denominational affiliation, uh, morality, or any other human factor. It is based solely on the work of Christ on the cross. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied this morning. We pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.